I'd like to start with um, another poem. We had one poem tonight that was a new one to us. This is perhaps new to you, but it is not a new poem. It was written likely in the 1700s. Um, It has been put to music as a hymn. It was not long ago put to a beautiful choral setting by a student at St. Olaf College, and you can look it up on on YouTube. It's absolutely beautiful, beautiful piece of music. Listen to these words. The tree of life my soul hath seen, laden with fruit and always green. The true trees of nature fruitless be, compared with Christ, the apple tree. His beauty doth all things excel, by faith I know but ne'er can tell. The glory which I now can see in Jesus Christ, the apple tree. For happiness I long have sought, and pleasure dearly I have bought. I missed of all, but now I see. Tis found in Christ, the apple tree. I'm weary with my former toil. Here I will sit and rest a while. Under the shadow I will be of Jesus Christ, the apple tree. With great delight I'll make my stay. There's none shall fright my soul away. Among the sons of men I see, there's none like Christ, the apple tree. I'll sit and eat this fruit divine. It cheers my heart like spiritual wine. And now this fruit is sweet to me that grows on Christ, the apple tree. This fruit doth make my soul to thrive. It keeps my dying faith alive, which makes my soul in haste to be with Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Now, this poem is pointing to the text that was read for us tonight from Song of Songs 2, verses 1 through 3. That verse in chapter 2, number 3, says, As the apple tree among the trees of the wood of the forest, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Tonight I'd like to speak on the subject, Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Jesus Christ, the apple tree. I had a special, I guess, picture of this this week. Just yesterday, Tabitha and our family went out to our apple tree. And those of you who have been over to our house this summer have seen our two apple trees in our front yard just utterly loaded down with apples. I've never seen a crop of apples on a tree like ours. I mean, so heavy, the bottom branches are dragging against the ground or, or, or very near to it with the weight of the fruit that was there. And as we came under this apple tree and pulled these rich apples, many of which probably you took um, this morning, you can check back there before you leave if, if there are still some left over. The picture of an apple tree. Apple tree. And a picture of a song of Solomon referring to the poetry of a person like an apple tree. This love of the the speaker and the singer, perhaps, in this song, almost like an opera. The, The singer saying, 
As the apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved. What would it mean? What would it look like? What would our experience be to come into the truth tonight that Jesus Christ is like an apple tree for each one of us? To look at this and guide our time together tonight, I want to break this into three parts. The first thing we're going to talk about is a relationship. A relationship. Now, notice here in chapter 2, we are in the song, we sometimes call it the Song of Solomon. But if you'll notice in chapter 1, it actually is called the Song of Songs. Have you ever thought of that? The Song of Songs? Well, think about a similar phrase. I heard a pastor mention this once, and it, it makes all the sense in the world. What do we call Jesus? Is there, are there any names that we give him that would be similar to a song of songs or that kind of use? What would we say? What do we call him? The King of Kings? The Lord of Lords? What do we mean when we say that Jesus is the King of Kings? We mean that there are many kings, but there is only one. King, capital K. He is the King of of kings. And what a wonderful picture, isn't it, that the Bible says this is the song of all songs. Now, what kind of song is the Song of Solomon? Is the Song of Songs. We just recently went through it in our Bible reading, and you may have been struck by something from this little book. There has been an attempt throughout church history to speak of this song as something almost exclusively allegorical. And it may be because, frankly, some parts of the Song of Songs make us to blush. And we think, wow, these are really uh, intimate. These are really personal. And so we strive to say, well, surely this must have some deeper, this must have some more spiritual-sounding reason. But in fact, we don't read the Bible as allegory unless it's clearly intended to be such. For example, one of the things that we have taught here at Straight Gate Church is the book of Revelation should not be treated as simply an allegory, simply a picture. We don't read our Old Testament prophets, generally speaking, of course, as an allegory, unless it is expressly stated to be as such. And just as we don't read the book of Revelation to simply be an allegory between good and evil in the world, we shouldn't read Song of Solomon to be an allegory about some kind of mystical union. This is really what it's about. No, what is Song of Solomon about? It's about romance. It's about physical, romantic love that is expressed between a husband and a wife. And we shouldn't treat it as something that it's not. It is intended to be a depiction of human love. And it's nothing to be ashamed about. It's nothing to blush about. It is something that God has given as a gift. When I marry Naomi and Jordan this weekend, upcoming weekend, and unite them together, I will make the point in some or substance that marriage is God's idea. God made human love. And he made it before the fall. Marriage was not something that came into being as a result, okay, I guess man's corrupted, now we've got to come together in a romantic love. No, this was God's idea. And it was always pointing ahead to a time when there would be no human marriage, no human romantic love. When will that be? One day eternally, Jesus says, they, are neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So why is it that God in before the fall of man, in this state gave us marriage, and in redeemed state of man, eternally, 
There will be no marriages because there will be only one marriage in heaven. It will be the marriage between the Son of God and his bride, the church. And so this has always been pointing to that great redemptive reality that we have when we attend the marriage supper of the Lamb and we are united eternally with our husband, if you will, Jesus Christ. So Song of Solomon is not an allegory. It is a depiction, a poetic depiction, of romantic human love that we can come into and find profit in. And so taking the Song of Songs at face value, notice chapter 2 and verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Now we sing a hymn about this. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. Do you know actually in context this probably isn't even the husband speaking? This is almost certainly the woman speaking. We apply it to Jesus, but actually if you read the context of it, and do you know, in fact, while we ascribe it to Jesus as if to say, wow, he's the lily of the valleys, it actually seems to be the woman being kind of self-deprecating. She says, I am the rose of Sharon. Well, the rose of Sharon actually isn't necessarily that stand out. They don't even think it's actually a rose, like the rose that we would think. That even wouldn't have been likely in this time frame. It was some other flower, perhaps a daffodil or something along those lines. And the lily of the valley it's not like a lily would necessarily stand out in the valley of Sharon as being something um, extraordinary or extravagant. It's as if the bride is saying to her husband, I'm, I'm actually kind of, I don't stand out a whole lot. I'm the lily, but I'm just among the valleys with all the other flowers. I'm, I'm a rose of Sharon, but I'm kind of just blending in. You saw a little bit of this in chapter 1 when she had said, I am black. Literally, I'm, I'm dark. She had been out in the sun. She was tanned in a world in which being lighter would have been generally prized. She actually seems almost to be a little bit reserved about this. But notice how her love responds. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. He takes her self-deprecating comment. Oh, you're just the lily among all the other lilies among the valleys. And he says, no, 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 no. You are my lily, but you're among the thorns. Compared to everyone else, you are radiant in your beauty. So is my love among the daughters. And now notice how freed, if you will, by that compliment, her warmth now expresses itself to her lover, the man. Verse 3, as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. So notice here what's going on is compliment. The husband is complimenting the, 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 the wife, or perhaps at this stage the fiancés are complimenting one another, and this provokes a compliment in terms of a return. And notice this compliment is along the lines of singularity. You're special. You're set apart. Like the lily among the thorns, that's who you are to me. And like the apple tree among all the other trees of the forest, so you are to me. But then notice also verse 3. I sat down under his shadow with great delight. Just like she says, you're just like an apple tree 
You stand out among all the other trees of the forest. She says, I sit down under your shadow. Now, this was a woman who knew the beating of the sun. We talked about it. She said, the sun has looked upon me in chapter number one. She had felt the hot rays of the sun working in her hands in a vineyard. And if any of you have been out working in a garden in a 95 or 100 degree day and felt the heat just baking down on you and the sun beating down on you, how refreshing is it to sit down under shade? She said, I sat down under his shadow with great delight. It was a shelter for her, a a, a kind of refreshment. And then notice, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. There was something about the contentment that she was now experiencing when she was spending time with him. It was rest. It was refreshment. It was a kind of relaxation that she was experiencing when they were spending time together. Now, when we start there with this human relationship, what Song of Solomon really actually is about, we already could have great uh, profit to those of us who are spouses or who one day will be. What we can already see is the testimony of Scripture to the singularity that spouses should have toward one another. So often we, in the years of marriage dragging by, our our spouse just naturally becomes to us kind of like another person. We start to focus on their weaknesses, the things that we think set them apart in a negative way. And we say, well, you don't do it like that person or that person is different than you in this positive way or negative way for you. And, And there's a sense in which we're being taught here that we should always be looking at our spouse's for what makes them singular in a positive way. What makes our spouse stand out as special? That makes them stand out as something that we can come into this respect and affection for. Always be looking for that in your spouse. Never never give that up. But notice as well this idea also of comfort and contentment in a good and godly marriage. The kind of contentment in which a wife particularly it's the woman speaking here, can, can spend time with her husband and in a sense her guard can come down. She can come under his shadow, a shadow of security, a shadow of shelter, a shadow of rest, a shadow of I don't need to be pretending I'm something I'm not. I'm secure in his love. I'm secure in his affection. I'm, I'm secure in the fact that I'm the only one. I am the lily among thorns for him. And we as husbands can do great, great damage when we don't allow that place of shadowing for our spouse, when we don't allow that place of security and shelter. And that's something that we can take. We can take the fact that there is to be contentment in what we as husbands are, that that this woman can say to her love, his fruit was sweet to my taste. That there was something to be delightful about the way that he interacted with her, the tenderness that he showed to her, the character that he related to her, that there was something that she delighted in spending time together with him, not necessarily even for what he did, but just who he was. Now, look, we could preach a whole sermon just simply on the literal meaning, the literal application of this relationship and what a special thing it is and a challenge it is for those who are in a marriage relationship. May you husbands be like an apple tree among the trees of the wood to your spouse. 
And wives, may, may you be willing to allow him to be that apple tree to you. There's already profit from there. But what we've asked tonight is, is there another picture that we can find profit in tonight? Would it be fitting or appropriate to say that Jesus Christ could be the, the apple tree in this story? Well, secondly, we need to look at a representation. So we saw the human relationship that's pictured here, and this is the primary meaning. It is the meaning of this passage. But notice then, is there a representation here? Well, first of all, I just want to point out a danger. There is a danger when we pretend that this allegory, an allegory or a picture, is the main meaning of the passage. Because as we said, it's not. It's not some big fancy allegory about Jesus Christ. If it is, you're going to have a really hard time trying to allegorize his hair being black and bushy like a raven's. Okay, I'm just going to tell you, good luck. Good luck with that one. But is there nonetheless a picture? Now, let me point out just the danger here. And it was um, presented in a, in, a, in, a, in a tweet recently that I saw by a man named Scott Aniel, a man who's written, I think, very helpfully on worship and on music and on dangers in our modern worship environment. He, he had this wonderful tweet. He, he tweet. he said, metaphors matter. He said, Jesus is not your boyfriend. He's your Lord. You know, there's a very powerful truth there. Jesus is not your boyfriend. He's your Lord, and that matters. And so when we think of a picture in which Jesus can come almost into a romantic step-in or substitute for us, we're already walking in dangerous waters. Is there a sense in which he is our husband? He is the, we are the bride. He is the groom? Yes, but Jesus is not your boyfriend. So be careful that we don't walk into this kind of emotionalism or sentimentalism toward the one who is to be and is your Lord. But nonetheless, is there a picture that we can draw appropriately biblically? Well, how would we think about treating a picture of Jesus Christ from the Song of Solomon? Well, one question is, is there a truth? Is his relationship depicted to us consistent with this picture? Well, we've already talked about the fact that Jesus is described as the one who is betrothed to us. One day we will come together eternally in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus himself depicts himself as our bridegroom. The bridegroom is coming. You better be ready to meet him. He is depicted as that. Paul depicts him in Ephesians as as the groom, the one that we are, he is speaking of the relationship between Christ and his church. And we look ahead in Revelation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that we see a sense in which we could say with the woman of the Song of Solomon, I am looking ahead to this kind of relationship with Jesus Christ. But I also want to see, could we depict, or do we see depicted this representation of Jesus as a tree? Are we depicted anywhere in Scripture of him being like an apple tree? Well, we remember, for example, in John, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. We see in terms of the picture of him as shade, we see depicted of him as the rock. We sing, the Lord's our rock, in him we hide, a shelter in the time of storm. But there's another picture here that I think is very powerful. If you go back into the 
very first, the very first chapters of the Bible, what was it that God planted in the Garden of Eden? He planted a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he said, you don't eat that one. But what was another tree that he planted? The tree of life. And do you know he never commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from that? He said, of all the trees of the garden you can eat, but you only can't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, you remember after Adam and Eve fell, God had to protect the tree of life. He said, lest they eat and live forever. Well, now the ark of redemption goes across the entire, all the pages of scripture, and we get to the very last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22, and John sees the, the new city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. He's experiencing in this divine foretaste the new heaven and the new earth. And what does he see? The tree of life bearing 12 different kinds of fruit, and it is there for the healing of the nations do you remember earlier in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, what Jesus says to John after he's appeared to him in this glorious form? He says, to him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life. This is a depiction, it's a picture of Jesus himself, who is the one who came bearing fruits in his grace for the healing of all the nations. And so I think it's very fitting for us, and it's not stretching the text inappropriately to say that just like we can say that there's a human relationship in which a husband can be the apple tree, there is a relationship we can have with Jesus Christ where he is like the apple tree to us. So thirdly, I want to look and finally at the refreshment the refreshment of this apple tree. Now, remember the three things that we noted about the human aspect of this relationship. The first was singularity, that she looks at the, that, at the, at the, at the husband, at the spouse, and she says, you are like the apple tree among all the trees of the forest. Now, think about that for a moment. What is different about the apple tree than all the trees of the forest? It's not that it has shade where others don't. All of them have shade. It's not that it has bark where others have bark. It's not where it has been no bark. It's not where that it has leaves and greenery where others don't. What is the singularity of the apple tree among the ordinary trees of the forest? Your maples and your oaks and your birches and your black walnuts. What is different? Fruit! As the apple tree among the trees of the forest, all of them can provide shade. All of them can provide some shelter. All of them can provide some beauty. But you alone among the apple trees are fruit bearing. We saw even in that poem, all the other trees are fruitless. None compare to Jesus Christ, the apple tree. So what's the picture here of Jesus Christ the apple tree. I want us to turn for just a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to comment here for just a moment on what is something that was connected to your salvation. Something connected to your salvation. Listen to verse number 3. Paul says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. It's hid, it's 
in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. You could translate that the gospel of the glory of Christ. The glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, what we perceive, of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. Now notice this picture. He's saying there are people that are blinded and are lost. And there are people that are, are, are eyes opened and they are saved. And what is the difference between them? One of them cannot see glory in Jesus Christ. One of them sees Jesus as glorious. They know. They have received the light of the knowledge. They know. They perceive the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, at the heart of being a Christian is seeing Jesus as singular. As seeing Jesus as being the apple tree among all the other trees of the forest. As being the only one who bears out and radiates the glory of God. The law came by Moses, John says, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so I ask you tonight, if Jesus Christ is the apple tree for you, do you see him as being unambiguously singular from every other human being who has ever lived? Do you see the glory of God when you read about Jesus in the Bible? Do you say, he's special? He's the only one? Or as that song we sing, the fairest among 10,000. Is that the picture that we have of Jesus? You say, what kind of glory am I supposed to see in Jesus? What am I supposed to see about him? And we've got to actually, I think, a helpful picture of this. Do you remember in the Old Testament in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34 when Moses comes to God and says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And do you remember God granted his request? And he says, I'll show you my glory, at least the back, the back of my glory. How did God show Moses his glory? Did he do it by splitting rocks? Did he do it by doing exhibitions of his power? No, do you remember what God said? He said, I will make my glory to pass through. And what did he proclaim? He proclaimed the nature and character of the Lord as he passed by Moses. What is God's glory? God's glory is contained in the excellence of his character, in his attributes which are internally above and superior to our human attributes. His glory is radiated in who he is, and that's Jesus. Jesus Christ in his glory, when we open his word and, 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 and his truth is revealed to us, we see him and his character as being set apart, as being singular, as being glorious. Let me just ask you tonight, do you see Jesus as being the apple tree 
among all the trees of the forest, one who is entirely singular to your nature and to your perception. He's the apple tree. But notice, secondly, not just the singularity that we saw here, but notice the shelter that we commented on. Remember again what the, what the bride says in, in Song of Songs. She says, I sat down under his shadow with great delight. What would it mean to have an experience with a relationship with Jesus Christ, the apple tree, where we sit down under his shadow? The picture to me is someone who is completely at rest. Completely at rest. Now, when you think of what it is, when you're tired, when you've worked, and the sun is beating down on you, and you just sit down in the shade, and maybe it's a hammock, or maybe it's one of those swings, tree swings, out under a yard, and you just let all your weight collapse into it, and you're, you're, you're blocked, you're shadowed from the heat of the sun. Think of that person in relating to Jesus Christ. The immediate picture that we can come to is the sun, if you will, of God's judgment, of God's wrath upon us, that we sit down under the shadow of Jesus Christ and of his his redemption, his sacrificial atonement for us, and we sit down and we find complete rest. You remember what Romans 5 says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God, completely at rest in our souls. Let me ask you, is Jesus Christ the apple tree for you that provides shelter, that provides the shadow of his atonement that you can rest completely in? I am saved. My sins are forgiven. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus is all and him in mine. Is that the person that Jesus Christ is for you? Is he an apple tree to you in that shadow? But the other picture I think here is not just someone who's completely at rest from God's wrath, from God's judgment, but someone who's free in a sense from being from the need to, if I could put it this way, impress. You know, there's something that's so um, wonderful for those who are married of being able to rest in the fact that your spouse knows you in a way that no one else does. And while that can be very sometimes uncomfortable, it can also be very freeing. Because you're not trying to put on airs anymore. You're not trying to be someone you're not. You're not trying to impress. You're just yourself. There's something that's deeply comforting like sitting under in the shade of an apple tree and just being at rest. Now think about that, what it's like with God. What is it like for you to realize that God knows you better than you know yourself? That you don't need to try to impress God because God is incapable, if you will, of being tricked, of thinking you're better than you are, of putting on a facade for him. I think of this uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 4 that we read not too long ago. Do you remember what Paul says? He said, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. He said, I'm impervious to being judged or scrutinized or condemned by other people. I'm not trying to impress anybody. Do you know what he said? Yea, I judge not mine own self. 
I don't even cast judgment on myself or on my ministry. Why? Because he says, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. Who's the one who knows me better than I do? I can't pass judgment on my ministry. He says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. How often do we scrutinize ourselves? Do we pass condemnation on ourselves? You failure. Your ministry's a failure. It's not worth anything. Look at you. People think you're this, but you're actually nothing. How often does Satan accuse us in that way of casting guilt and condemnation and shame down on us? What would it mean for you for Jesus Christ to be your apple tree where you go and rest under his shade and take shelter and say, I don't need to put on airs before you or anyone else. I don't need to cast judgment on myself, and I don't need others to cast judgment on me. Why? Because my judgment is of you, Jesus, and my judgment has been fully fulfilled in you on the cross. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. Friends, don't be your own accuser. Don't, be, don't give in to the lies of Satan. Sit under the apple tree. Jesus Christ, the apple tree, whose shadow will be yours of great delight. Do you remember the wonderful words of Psalm 91? He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Is Jesus Christ your apple tree in whom you are finding shadow and shade tonight. But finally, not just singularity, not just shelter, but notice finally, satisfaction. Satisfaction. What does this bride say? This woman looking to the love of her life, she says, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. All of you have bit into an apple, I'm sure, before, and tasted that sweetness, tasted the satisfaction, water has, uh, apple has such a water content in it that you can be even your thirst quenched, your hunger can be quenched, and you just experience the sweet taste of that apple. And now think of what that is for Jesus to be an apple tree who is providing sweetness, satisfaction to your spiritual taste. And this picture is all over. We read in Psalm chapter 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We think of in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Now listen to this. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord, the Lord Jesus, is gracious. His character is good. He is overflowing in grace to you. In other words, what does it mean to taste of the Lord Jesus Christ like, like fruit from an apple tree? It's like to take of his glorious character and taste of it for yourself. Taste that the Lord is good. Now, I need to pause here for a minute because we're getting to an area where I can't verbalize it anymore. It'd be like if one of you had never tasted an apple and you said, Peter, what does an apple taste like? I could say, well, this one tastes a little bit tart, 
but a little bit sweet and it's a little bit crunchy. And you'd say, okay, well, I don't really know what that tastes like. I guess I just have to taste it. And there's a certain sense at which I can't say any more to you about what Jesus tastes other than by the grace of God I've tasted. And it's really good. It's really good. You who have tasted it and are nodding your heads, you're saying, I have tasted it too. Let me just try for just one moment. For me, I think the taste of the Lord Jesus Christ and tasting of his goodness is some kind of, of inner reality. It's a soul reality that touches my affections more than it does my intellect. We all, I'm sure, have had a time when we have been intellectually attuned to something. You learn something, and it's like the light bulb goes on, and you say, oh, that's really cool. You've read the Bible, and you've never understood a passage before, and then something jumped out at you, and you say, oh, it makes sense to me. You hear someone preach about a passage, and you say, oh, it just clicked. Intellectually, I understand it. That's not, I think, the main thing about tasting that the Lord is good. Tasting that the Lord is good, at least in my experience, has been where the truth that I know intellectually gets applied to my heart in a way that brings contentment and joy because it brings reality. It's when I, it's when I taste something from the word of God and it's like my soul is just stirred, my affections are just stirred and I say, Jesus, you really are like that. You really do love me. You really do forgive me. And it's like this warmth that floods my soul where I say, it's true. Jesus is good like that. And I don't know the depth or what you're experienced or the regularity with which you experience Jesus Christ as your apple tree who is giving sweet taste to your mouth spiritually. But I would just encourage you tonight, pursue it. Pursue the relationship with Jesus Christ where you are tasting with your affections, not just your intellect, that he is good and that he, his character of grace is directed towards you and he is exactly who he says he is and you are experiencing his reality. Is that your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you taste and see that he is good? Don't forget what Psalm 34 says immediately after that. Blessed are all they that trust in him. How do you taste that Jesus is good? You trust in him. You believe him. You appropriate his goodness by faith. And the Holy Spirit applies it to your heart and to your affections. Friends, there are those who have human marriages who can know and say, my spouse is like an apple tree to me. But how much more important is it that Jesus Christ be the apple tree to you? I want to close with where I started. The tree of life my soul hath seen, laden with fruit and always green, the trees of nature fruitless be compared with Christ, the apple tree. His beauty doth all things excel. By faith I know, but ne'er can tell the glory which I now can see in Jesus Christ, the apple tree. For happiness I long have sought and pleasure dearly I have bought. I missed of all, but now I see. Tis found in Christ, the apple tree. 
I'm weary with my former toil. Here I will sit and rest a while. Under the shadow I will be of Jesus Christ, the apple tree. With great delight I'll make my stay. There's none shall fright my soul away. Among the sons of men I see, there's none like Christ, the apple tree. I'll sit and eat this fruit divine. It cheers my heart like spiritual wine. And now this fruit is sweet to me that grows on Christ, the apple tree. This fruit doth make my soul to thrive. It keeps my dying faith alive, which makes my soul in haste to be with Jesus Christ, the apple tree.